Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, do we have a hashtag for this podcast? We do. Yeah, what is it? It's called hashtag um, blow the mind protest woe protesting in a digital age. Oh, okay. That, that's, that's really, I think that's going to fly. A good one. I don't know if we're going to have enough room for the, the rest of the tweet, but but it's, it's, it's pretty good. We'll, we'll try that out. Yeah, we'll work on that. Uh, no, but this we're, we're talking about today. I'm pretty sure we get to own that hashtag. We don't have to. I don't think it. anybody's yeah. gonna. It's not gonna be like uh, when I tried to to retake blow uh, blew my mind. Yeah. From the uh, from from the rest of the Twitterverse. That's right. But uh, but yeah, we're, we're talking in this uh, podcast uh, specifically uh, about Occupy Wall Street uh, mm-hmm. and some of these other um, social media enhanced uh, protest movements that have. Uh, Taken hold in late 2010 and then throughout 2011, mm-hmm. uh, ranging from, uh, you know, from the Arab Spring to, uh, to London to back here in the U.S. with mm-hmm. uh, the Occupy stuff. Uh, and of course the Occupy stuff is, has bled over into other countries as well. But we're talking about what is a, a modern protest? What does it look yeah, like yeah. these days? How is the modern protest shaping up? I mean, uh, protests have always utilized, uh, advanced technology to whatever degree it's available. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, the way we work. Um, and, uh, so it's no surprise that people are going to use, uh, modern technology, modern social media to, uh, to, to fuel the movement. Um, but let's back up before we, we get into, too into the technology right. things. Uh, just talking about numbers because uh, people buy the numbers. Yeah. Because when we're talking about hashtags being heard around the world, mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent, we're talking about the, the number of people involved in that protest because I, I, I mean, the, the people observing a protest are arguably as important uh, as the individuals that are partaking in it, because yeah, it has to be yeah. seen to, to to really take that effect. That's right. the whole point: is to convey the importance of a topic. And to put a little context behind that too, when we're talking about uh, the hashtag Occupy Wall Street, which showed up on July 13th, right? Is uh-huh. just this sort of idea linking to a blog about, hey, we should occupy Wall Street. There, obviously, there was. Uh, no formal movement at that time or even intention. So the earth we live on is currently home to what? Seven billion people now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just had the seventh billionth uh, birth, uh, yeah, last couple of weeks. Uh, last couple. Can you imagine being like, hey, I'm baby, seven billion? Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm I sure would hope my parents would call me seven that billion. Baby, yeah, seven billion yeah, would be name the baby's me that. Name. Um, these billions and billions of people, uh, roughly spread across 240 countries, mm-hmm. close to 7,000 languages around like Documented, six, yeah, right? Documented languages. Yeah, somewhere in the, the neighborhood of uh, 6,912. Um, and more branches of religion, personal belief, ideology than you can shake a stick at. Yeah, 20 major, but you're right. There's there's uh, quite a bit more than that. Yeah, and we continue to grow. We continue to, in some cases, splinter uh, and, and reorganize uh, amid those groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so how are you going to get these people together because uh, I, I was I was uh, talking with my, my wife the other day about a, a, a recent episode of This American Life where they're talking about junior high and how mm-hmm. junior high is horrible and how one of the things going on in junior high is that when you're young, you get along with everybody. Mm-hmm. But then as you get older, uh, just within school, uh, you begin you become more judgmental. You become more perceptive to uh, you know who you want to be associated with and who you want to uh to identify with. Yeah, you then, created this blueprint of reality in your right. brain. And so by junior high, it's already pretty complicated. So how do we ever agree on anything? <laughs> how do we ever... How do we get out of high school mentality? Right. And uh, historically, uh, wars are generally a pretty good way to do it. Um, 
I mean, wars have long brought together millions of individuals and pitched battles. Mm -hmm. It's thankfully, hopefully, seems to be going out of style in recent years. Uh, And and due in part. Well, again, because technology has changed changed the the way that we wage war. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then maybe there's something going on in the in our collective psyches as well. But uh, the better angels of ourselves. We can hope. I've seen some interesting arguments to that, that we, you know, we live in a time where there's there's less war now than than ever before. So. Let's hope the trend mm-hmm. keeps up uh, until the big machine human war. Uh, oh, yeah. right, right, right. But, uh, the singularity. Yeah, but that's going to bring us all together even more. Uh, so, like, it's hard to put stats on some of these ancient battles, but uh, 480 B.C., the Persian army marched into the uh, Battle of uh, Thermopylae with uh, between 200,000 and 500,000 uh, men. Uh, more than 2,000 years later, in 1943, the Soviet Union's Red Army suffered more than a million casualties at the Battle of Stalingrad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have other examples where we can see people converging, uh, for a cause that is not, uh, bloodthirsty and, uh, drenched in hardship. Right. Uh, January 2007, an estimated 60 million Hindu pilgrims gathered, um, at the convergence of the Ganges and Yamuna rivers in northern India for the, um, Ard Kumbla Mela festival. Mm-hmm. A huge festival. You've probably seen, uh, Clips of this uh, individuals bathing uh, in in the, yes. the rivers and yep. um, it's know. sort of an act of purity, right? Yeah, an act of yeah. purity. Sixty million people coming together for that, which is uh, amazing. I, amazing. Yeah. So protests also bring people together, and this is the right. and uh, we just recorded a podcast uh, about this, so it should already be in your iTunes folder or hanging out on the web for you to listen to if you want a little more information about why we get into into the protest mentality. But once we are there, uh, we can gather in in rather large numbers sometimes. Right. And uh, the reason why Occupy Wall Street has, uh, I think, some legs or has had legs, at least over the past four months, mm-hmm. we don't, again, know what its fate is now, um, it has the classic earmarks of a protest. So we're talking about disenfranchised people, right? Yes, check. Uh, crappy economy. Check. Uh-huh. And stagnating politics. Oh, d- double check. Right. Yeah. So pretty much, this is pretty much a global situation right now, right? So it's right. not just in the United States, uh, the, you know, group of people in New York starting this. Uh, that's why it has, you know, such resonation all over the world. Um, and of course we've seen this before. We've seen it with Vietnam, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit different circumstances, but we have people who are saying that there are wrongs that need to be righted. We've seen it with the Arab Spring. Um, but the Arab Spring being just the the string of uh, of protests and mm-hmm. and in, in, in many in some cases actual you know rebellion revolution uh, mm-hmm. situations that has just spread throughout various countries uh, in the Middle East, ranging from uh, uh, we've seen the protests in Iran, mm-hmm. uh, Tunisia, uh, Egypt, um, Libya. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it points to the fact that people will put up with a lot of crap until it gets to the point where you know it's it's a uh, it's making them powerless in their day-to-day decisions on whether or not to buy groceries mm-hmm. or, you know, buy new shoes or, you know, it's hamstringing them. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we, we can put up with a lot of corruption, a lot of political hooey until that happens. All right. We're going to take a quick break uh, to hear a word from our sponsors. And uh, then we're going to really break down the question, what is the largest protest of all time? And what factors made it that way? Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. 
All right, we're back. Largest protest. Uh, this is something that is sometimes very difficult to gauge because not every protest consists of individuals gathering in a, in a square. Mm-hmm. And then it's hard to, to count sizes. And, and, and you're going to get into uh, the, the uh, wars of information and politics of information, too, where uh, the protesters are, are, may in some cases want to inflate the number because mm-hmm. it sounds better. And then the people cracking down on the protests are likely to lower that number for obvious reasons. You know what? I, I just occurred to me. Why don't they use the same technology that NASA does to count the constellations that they then applied to tracking dolphins? Well, true. That's that's true. You yeah. could do some sort of sophisticated data. But then if you're the people who has that in that technology, mm-hmm. it's going to tend to be the uh, the governmental forces. So they're not going to necessarily want an accurate count anyway, not for public consumption. Uh, and then uh, the other thing, think back to uh, in the other podcast, we mentioned uh, Mahatma Gandhi and the whole uh, uh, some of the civil disobedience that was going on there with individuals protesting by not showing up for work right. or by resigning from their positions. Uh, you get into protests of that nature and it becomes even more difficult to to gauge what the turnout is. Because they're protesting in ways in right. which they're not visible. When you're getting down into actual uh numbers, though, uh, and you can say, like, well, this is the number of individuals that we know of that participated mm-hmm. in this, and therefore this is a very large or the biggest protest. One of the big ones, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, uh, was it was the Iraq protest in Rome, uh, February 15, 2003. Mm-hmm. The event drew a crowd of uh, estimated 3 million people, and on the same day, protesters gathered in nearly 600 cities in a coordinated global effort to express moral outrage against the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Mm-hmm. So you had like 1.3 million uh, protesters in Barcelona, Spain, uh, between 750,000 and 2 million in London, um, all told, uh, according to BBC, between 6 and 10 million people uh, participating in a global protest. Which is amazing because think about, uh, you know, we, when we talked about the civil rights movement and we talked about Rosa Parks mm-hmm. and how her refusal to give up a seat to a white person then uh, spurred a 381-day th- boycott of the bus system, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this was something that was in the works forever. I mean, that this there were a lot of people working on this specific plan and other ones um, for months and months and months. And then you have something like this between six and 10 million people protesting. And I'm going to wager it a bit that it didn't take that long, given the, the data that we know about when the Iraq war broke out and when the protests happened, uh, that people were mobilized. And so you can obviously point to really one key factor in mobilizing all those people, which is the technology we have available today. Right. Which really does change the, the landscape of protesting. It's it's worth noting real quick before we get even more into the the technological stuff that that sometimes a protest is just as simple as a naked lady uh, with a fur and some fake blood splattered on her, you know, or a naked man, or a naked man, mm-hmm. preferably both, I guess, so you get all your demographics covered. But but that's the shock tactic. The right? shock tactic. That's but, like, hey, we want to we want the media to cover this. Yeah, and then that's the thing. Like like PETA, no matter what you think about PETA, and and certainly there are some very. Uh, some very contrary positions on, on on what PETA stands for mm-hmm. and or how they carry out uh, their protests, but their protests tend to, uh, to to get attention. They do, and I will say, you know, I've I've certainly walked through a PETA protest. I was walking through one in Boston with my mom uh, when when we all lived there um, a number of years ago, and my mom had a fake fur colored line jacket on. Oh no! And of course, <laughs> she was the target. But the the 
thing that stood out is that they said, I hope that you get cancer and die. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously. Did they sling fake blood on her or anything? Uh, no, they didn't. Okay. But that was in itself really, uh, very jarring, obviously. And my mom, um, she was actually kind of oblivious. She was kind of like, what did they just say? And I was like, nothing. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are, there are effective ways to, to really get at, um, at, at the psyche, right? And that's, right. that's what protests are trying to do. So you can do it in numbers or you can do it in, in awful things that you say to passersby. Yeah. And then, of course, there's, there's art, there's music, protest songs, mm-hmm. protest uh, in our art, uh, episode that we did recently about uh, your brain on art we mentioned uh, uh like the works of public picasso talking about the spanish civil war mm-hmm. and expressing that through art expressing his outrage and varied emotions about this uh, political situation through uh the expression of art so. you know and i'm thinking too um about uh, the protest of the iraq war and obviously this is before Twitter and Facebook and this isn't a question that we can answer today or anytime soon but uh you know I do wonder how it would impact or would have impacted mm. that protest do you think more people would have participated do you think that it would have attenuated it in some way because uh, it might have taken focus away uh, and we certainly know that the protests of late have been really effective because of these technologies yeah it's it's real effective for a number of reasons but uh, I mean I mean because a, it's instant networking. It's social networking. Mm-hmm. It's it's the ability to throw something out with that hashtag, occupy Wall Street, and then everybody following that hashtag can instantly see what's up. Mm-hmm. Real time information, in all of its effective and in some cases uh, perplexing manner. You know, right, I mean, it's right. uh, the the real time aspect of it. I think is really key because you can you could be like somebody suddenly somebody's tweeting, hey, the police are cracking down. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're moving into this area, and everybody knows. Yeah, uh, and it's also allowed certain groups to even. It, it allows you this huge voice without necessarily having any huge investment in the megaphone, mm-hmm. in the, uh, the metaphorical me- megaphone mm-hmm. or, or the real megaphone, you know, um, <laughs> like it, not quite a protest, but just consider um, with all the crackdowns that have occurred on uh, WikiLeaks, uh, right. a lot of uh, their continued momentum has taken place on Twitter where they've continued to be able to speak out to all of these followers despite bank accounts and websites mm-hmm. uh, going down around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just I can't help but think about the protests in Iraq or the protests of the Iraq war and 10 million people mobilized by via email, right? That's a huge coordinated global effort, just what it might have looked like with these different technologies that we use today. Right. Um, of course, people, people were, were, have been studying the the impact of social media uh, on protests mm-hmm. um, and movements uh, prior to all of this. I, I actually spoke to uh, uh, this uh, guy by the name of uh, Dr. Michael Best, who heads uh, Technologies and International uh, Development uh, Lab at the Georgia Institute of Technology. I, mm-hmm. t- I spoke to him in early 2011 um, for an article on Discovery News called Are Smartphones Worth It? Mm-hmm. And it ended up being a lot more interesting of an article uh, than it sounds because I I got to discuss, like, how does it affect our daily lives? Right. And and then uh, by talking to Best, uh, learned a little bit about how it was uh, specifically being used by um, Nigerians uh, leading into the 2011 Nigerian election. Mm -hmm. And they were doing a lot of political organizing. They were planning uh, activist meetings and flash mobs, Mm -hmm. all leading up to uh, the election that I that was at least at that time slated to take place in April. And and at the time, I thought it was really interesting. But mm-hmm. then, of course, this turns out to be a major theme of 2011. Right. Um, as individuals are, are tweeting about the various protests that they're involved in mm-hmm. uh, and and coordinating their movements. And in all of this, I, I also can't help but think another advantage 
of social media and specifically Twitter, uh, has to do with the people observing because I, th- I feel like with Twitter, one of the things people like about celebrities being on, on Twitter mm-hmm. is that you're kind of as close to that celebrity as you are to the friend, the real life friend that you know on Twitter. Like there's, this, there's this, um, there's this closeness. That's there. Well, there's this idea that you're getting insights right. into how they're living and right. and you're, what they're thinking. And you're all a part of the same information stream. Mm-hmm. So when you're observing like a real-time protest taking place on Twitter and you're seeing updates about Occupy Wall Street or or the, the protests in Iran, whatever it may be, I feel like the people observing it uh, on Twitter end up feeling closer mm-hmm. and a little more personally invested you feel in like the this, movement. It, it probably gives people a little bit more empathy. Right. Movement. So if someone is sprayed with tear gas, right? And let's say that this was a, uh, the use was, was, um, just an indiscriminate response by police. Right. And that, or that was how it was tweeted, right? Right. Then people are going to say, oh my, you know, the depth of injustice here is unbearable. Yeah. Because you're getting real time data about this. Right. I think it's like if you, it's as if you were standing on the edges of a protesting crowd in Mm -hmm. real life. Mm -hmm. And even if you're not actively participating in it, Mm -hmm. you're going to feel a little more like, a protest. You're going to feel more sympathetic to that cause just by virtue of being in close proximity to it. And the, uh, the, the, the social media world of Twitter puts you on the edges of that crowd uh, in a virtual sense. Right. So I think that the same thing ends up happening. Well, it's, a, it's such a game changer too for the government because now that you do have these, so much information to share, it's very easy, uh, to document the missteps that the government might take or that a police force might take. Against protesters. Uh, so, you know, obviously that sort of stuff came out before, but now it's, it's pretty verifiable, particularly if you've got, you know, cell phone video of it. Now, of course, it's worth noting that, that uh, throughout these, uh, these various protests and all, Twitter hasn't necessarily been the motivating force. It's not like Twitter was the, uh, like the, the real power of the movement necessarily. Uh, it certainly helped and, and it was certainly a game changer, but take the Egyptian revolution, um, uh, January through February 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Twitter and, and the various social media outlets are make, made a lot of headlines. Uh, but the television, newspapers, and telephone, um, specifically uh, like Al Jazeera, uh, continued to, to be a, a major informer for mm-hmm. the people, mm-hmm. uh, even as the Egyptians, uh, the Egyptian government blocked Internet connections uh, in January. So, uh, you know, it's worth noting that there are other media outlets in, in play here. Uh, and then in some cases, uh, this was pretty interesting. This was from... Uh, February 2011, following the uprisings in the, the Middle East, uh, some individuals in China were arguing for a, quote, Jasmine revolution. Right, yeah. And uh, they were talking about it on this overseas Chinese community news site, uh, Boxun, B-O-X-U-N. Mm-hmm. The Chinese government ended up blocking searches for Jasmine, for the term Jasmine. Mm-hmm. And uh, they uh, also, uh, the, the website was hacked by a denial of service attack. So Right, right. So that you see a little bit of the sort of uh, digital, virtual, social media warfare mm-hmm. that, that ends up taking place. Like the basically the the protesting uh, situation of the the crowd of protesters and the uh, riot control uh, taking place in a virtual. See, realm. Yeah, seeing it play out there. But and actually, that's is worth noting too that the the Jasmine Revolution really didn't have legs, right? Right. Um, for that very reason that it was shut down. So, you know, looking to the future a bit, it'll be very interesting to see how China and protesting uh, take place in the future, given yeah. the technologies and also given the fact that, you know, it, it, if you can shut down uh, a protest 
that way. You can obviously have people go in and hack the other way. Right. Uh, so, I don't know. Just, just interesting thought. With that many people in, in one country, surely something will come out of it. Yeah. But I, I guess one of the things, too, is that even, even as, uh, as we get increasingly digital, like, uh, it, it seems like the idea of individuals gathering together to support a cause is just, is going to remain a vital part of protest. Like, I can't see, I can't see protests going completely digital, you know, because yeah. it's kind of like uh, on Facebook, for instance. For a while there, there were a string of these things where it's like, uh, speak out against, uh, I don't know, something like child abuse by changing your, your profile picture to a cartoon or something. Uh, like there was, there was a, there was a string of these. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then finally people started saying, you know, this is, this is kind of dumb because we're not doing anything. Mm-hmm. You're not actually doing anything for these causes. You're just, it's you not know, like you quit paying your taxes, right? Right, like right. Thoreau. It, it's not like you went out in the street and made yourself known and were, I mean, mm-hmm. there's something about people gathering in a space, generally a space they're not really supposed to be in, um, and speaking out as, as, as a group and saying, look at these individuals all piled here together. Look at them. Uh, look at us. Yeah, but not to sound too Orwellian, again, looking toward the future and thinking about facial recognition software, it could be really problematic for people in the near future to congregate. And um, I was just thinking about the app that came out for the Chicago bar scene using facial recognition software, which you can you know, go by a bar and it basically is going to tell you um, the age range of the people in there and the relative income, which, by the way, if you've huh. ever... Just by looking at faces? Yeah, from the facial recognition software. Like you take a picture of people at the bar and then it... Yeah, because it's uh, because it's indexing some sort of database that's basically saying, oh, okay, well, I mean, I don't know, if someone's wearing pearls, maybe it's uh, looking at that. I don't... Huh. Yeah. But anyway, the the point is, is that this is a software that could be used uh, for crowds and you could start, you know, IDing certain people. Um, you could tag them as a known protester. You could begin uh, tracking them. And this is fascinating. I could see then a situation where, say, a protest movement begins to um, gel together mm-hmm. in a public space. They send a guy out with one of these devices. All he has to do is take right. a picture, uh, uh, analyze it, just a quick scan of the crowd, and then it will uh, it will compare faces with the database. It will sort of judge uh, you know the various socioeconomic status, mm-hmm. uh, any possible criminal histories, and then give them a readout. Uh, with advice on the next step. They could be like, oh, this is nothing to worry about. This is going to break down in a couple of hours versus go ahead and shut this down now because this is going to get bad. Right. So right now we think about protesters facing um, officers who might be armored with Kevlar vests and plastic shields. And, um, you know, instead of bullets, they might be hit by rubber bullets, which we've seen before. Um, you know, you've got snatch squads mm-hmm. that will come and snatch people. Um and sound can, and we've talked about this too in our Future of Pain podcast about how you can basically just uh, scatter a bunch of people with an incredibly loud noises. Okay, uh-huh. so you have all of that, but maybe in the future, you know, you don't have uh, as much of a police presence, but you do have people in the crowd who are uh, trying to shut it down by getting the data on the people and uh, preventing them for future, you know, in, from participating in future protests. Huh. It's very likely. Uh, I, this is kind, I mean, it's kind of insidious. Yeah, this is kind of a, a, a tangent, but I, I can't help but be reminded. I think it's a, it's a, it's like a DJ Shadow track um, from a, an older album where mm-hmm. uh, he ended up sampling uh, this this bit from a, a sermon that was taking place uh, in the Woodstock era, and uh, the the, uh, the preacher giving this sermon was talking like he was describing outlandishly like a situation where you had like hippies 
in uh, in kind of a protest environment, and the the police could not enter. They could not even like enter in to like control them mm-hmm. because the marijuana smoke was too thick. <laughs> that that it was just. There was just this crowd of just out of control, sinful hippies, uh-huh. and they were just just layered in drug smoke, so that the the police couldn't go in. And, and so stop the way them. to combat facial recognition software is just to have a big thick, uh, ganja cloud. Uh, well, us. according to this guy, according I guess. to yeah. that guy, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not suggesting that you're you're, you're uh, saying people should do that. But it is. Or a, are you? Well, but but no, I'm not suggesting people do that. But but it, you know, it just brought it to mind. But here's the thing about the facial recognition software. Mm-hmm. Um, Everybody could just end up wearing masks, right? I mean, that's the whole the whole V for Vendetta, Guy Fox mask. That's that true. That's true. Become increasingly uh, a symbol, really more of a symbol of these various movements and various groups like Anonymous, uh, uh, et cetera, uh, mm-hmm. rather than just this movie based on this Alan Moore graphic novel. Yep, yep. You could you could dial down the protester profiling profiling yeah. by doing that for Though sure. No, in some cases it's illegal to wear a mask in public uh, officially. So. I can understand why. I, I was on Marta one day and someone had a mask on. Um, and I can't remember. It was maybe like Tigger or something. Uh-huh. It was so disconcerting. Hmm. I thought for sure, no, you know, no good will come of this. Yeah. You know, this, yeah. Well, when, uh, uh, for the, uh, the Olympics that took place in China, uh, Mexico sent, uh, a couple of luchadors, the masked wrestlers, mm-hmm. not to actually compete, but to just sort of, I think they were doing a show there. It was just yeah. kind of goodwill kind of thing. But they had to get special permission. For them to wear their masks mm-hmm. because they can't take their masks off. You know, I mean, that's their identity, right? I mean, right. That's and, right. And I mean, there's no point in them going over there if they can't wear their masks. They are their masks. Mm-hmm. So they had to get special permission from the Chinese government to uh, to wear these things. Yeah. <laughs> well, oh, by the way, when I speak of Marta, I'm talking about the train system we have here in Atlanta. Yes. In case anybody's like, what do you mean you are on Marta? Who's Marta? Yeah. Yeah. It, that's the train system. Oh, all right. So just just a little bit of food for thought. Um the number one indicator of civil unrest, lack of money, right? Yes. And then, of course, resources and political corruption. Now, uh, keep in mind that by 2050, we're adding about two and a half billion more people. Well, I don't know. What do you think is going to happen? Uh, well, I think, as with any age uh, in the past, there will continue to be protests. Mm-hmm. There will continue to be situations that are worth protesting about. Uh and hopefully, like I said at the, the start of the podcast, we'll continue to engage in these type of group uh, activities rather than open warfare. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a much better prospect for sure. So there you go. What do we have in our magic mailbox? There? I don't know. Where's the robot? Oh, there he <sighs> Robot's is. Robot's always taking breaks, man. There you go. Bring us some of that sweet listener mail. All right, here we go. Uh, we have one from a listener by the name of Jen. Jen writes in. Uh, and says, hello, Robert and Julie. I hope this finds you well. I've been listening to your podcast for about half a year, and I've loved every single one. That's that's great. I, even I, I haven't loved every single one. Um, I, you haven't? No, I love every single one. I've loved all of them except for one. Okay. I won't talk about it, though. Okay. Um, I now look forward to my long commutes because I get to listen to your entertaining and insightful conversations. I think that's why your podcast really stands out for me. You're not just delivering information uh, to your listeners, but you are actively engaging uh, with it and picking apart uh, some quite complicated topics for us. Thank you for hours of entertainment. It takes my mind off of how much I'm spending on gas. As a graduate student researching uh, medieval gender and women's history, 
which is pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. I particularly appreciated your October 11th podcast on evolution of and the orgasm war. Um, I apologize for this being late. My iPod broke, and I only just replaced it. So I was listening uh, to two months' worth of podcasts last week. Uh, ideas about the nature of the female orgasm, especially in regard uh, to its uh, necessity or lack thereof for uh, conception, was a topic of interest uh, for doctors, church officials, and court officials alike in the Middle Ages. In fact, it had rather tragic consequences for a number of women throughout the period. Um, Galenic medicine, the dominant theory throughout uh, the Middle Ages, held that female orgasm was a necessary requisite for conception. It was widely believed that women also produced sperm during intercourse, and it could only be released if the woman had enjoyed herself. Consequently, a woman in the Middle Ages who was the victim of a rape resulting in pregnancy had no legal recourses uh, in many areas of Europe. Her pregnancy belied her enjoyment of the encounter, which inherently singled her consent to the act. Well, that was a bummer. Anyway, thank you once again for your wonderful podcast, and I'm sorry that my gratitude prompted me to tell you some really sad history. You guys rule best. Jen. Well, that's awesome. That was yeah, something yeah. very interesting and, and certainly kind of sad rather uh, insight. But, I mean, that's that's exploring anything about the Middle Ages. Well, true, true. But it is uplifting in the sense that if you think that the female orgasm is still a mystery, just look back down and say, ah, things yeah, are... <laughs> the understanding things is, out, is, right? is a, a little bit better there. Yeah, but you got to love the, the Middle Ages. So I'm excited that we have a, a listener who is steeped in medieval lore. Yeah, well, and especially in, in, in gender issues. All right, Robot, hand me another one. Here we go. Um, Jim writes in and says, Hi, guys. Your mind-slash-art show um, reminded me of an exhibit I saw a few years ago. I took my then 8-year-old son to the moment in New York City on a school holiday. Uh, they had a really cool temporary exhibit. It contained something like 64 small works of art in sequential order. The concept of this exhibit was that each work related to the to the next one, uh, the one next to it. For example, a Rubik's Cube was next to a drawing of a Rubik's Cube, which was next to a drawing of a cube-shaped building, which was next to a round building, etc. At one place, we came across a photo of rocks. Then there were rocks displayed as a sculpture. Then the rocks were on paper. Then there was paper. Then shredded paper. Then some scissors. Aha! Rock, paper, scissors. The exhibit came with a brochure which identified the works and artists, but uh, there were no details about how the pieces related. This was up to the viewer. Uh, the last several items were a dangling bear light bulb that talked, uh, a set of uh, phrases out of, uh, out of any meaningful context, a film projector, a vintage photo from the balcony of a 1940s-era movie theater, a sign that said, The End, and finally, you had to check the brochure uh, for this one, but the room's built-in exit sign was the final piece. It was uh, really cool and fun to walk through the exhibit uh, with my son and figure out the connections. Well, that, that's interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I've, I've gotten to, to look at some art with uh, the niece and nephew, so, and uh, and it is interesting to uh, to sort of prod young minds on and see them uh, inspired by trying to figure out what art is about. And and in, as we discussed in the podcast, it's one of the amazing things about art how it engages with their brain. Uh, on both conscious and subconscious levels. Yeah, and was that quote from Picasso something like he, you know, he could draw like Rembrandt, but it took him, uh, you know, his whole lifetime to to draw like a child mm-hmm. or think like a child. I guess is what he was saying. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's really cool, and I love the idea that it's this cumulative work that you continue, like your your perception is forced to reevaluate each piece that you're seeing as a whole. <laughs> it's pretty trippy. Yeah. Well, hey, if you have anything trippy you would like to share with us, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. 
And uh, we, we try and update both of those uh, feeds with all sorts of cool links, uh, both the stuff that we're working on and stuff we've done and you know, podcast topics, but also just cool things we find uh, around the net. And certainly you guys are invited to share that kind of stuff as well. Uh, on more than one occasion, uh, something you guys have shared with us has turned around and ended up being a podcast episode all on its own. And you can always send us your thoughts via email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.